Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. On the southern tip of Vancouver Island in Canada lies the sprawling city of Victoria. Spread out on the peninsula, it is surrounded by ocean and coastal mountains. In the upscale neighborhood of Ten Mile Point, Darren Hooneman resided with his mother Sharon and stepfather Ralph. Across the water on the mainland near Vancouver, his grandmother, Doris Leatherbarrow, resided in Tawasson, a posh neighborhood bordering the ocean. Doris worked hard her whole life and at seven years old was still working. She owned and managed a small chain of women's clothing stores. She was known to spoil her grandson, who was a straight-A student. She gave him gifts of $30,000 in bonds and a $35,000 car. But it wasn't enough for Darren. He wanted more. He wanted it all. 17-year-old Darren started taking his thoughts and saying them out loud. Thoughts that he shared with his friends at school and his fellow players in the online role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. Darren was a dungeon master, the one who controls the game, the storyteller, the one that chooses the plot, sets the rules, and enforces them. He told them that his grandmother was worth four to eight million dollars and that when she died, he'd get half. But if his mother died too, he would get it all. And he planned to murder them for it. But none of the players took him seriously. They thought he was joking. In the summer of 1990, Darren turned 18 and started to formulate a plan to murder his family and decided that he would need an alibi and reached out to Amanda Cousins, a pretty 16-year-old girl with blonde hair and blue eyes who was new to town. The Times columnist reported that in June, he called her up out of the blue. She was busy, but they talked briefly about school and the friends they had in common. Later that week, he sent her a rose and incense. Within two weeks, their small talk turned to something much more serious. Darren started talking about killing his mother, grandmother, and stepfather so that he could inherit all of his grandmother's estate. The Nanaimo Daily News reported that Darren had come up with five plans. The first was to use a gas line to blow up his grandmother's house when his parents were visiting. But then he reconsidered because it would look like an assassination. His second plan was to blow up his own home when his grandmother was visiting. But he eventually scrapped that plan because he didn't want to destroy the art in their home. His third and fourth plans involved the family car, either planting a bomb or tampering with the brakes. But he scrapped those plans too because his parents and grandmother were rarely in the same car at the same time. 
His fifth plan was to hire someone else to carry out the murders. Amanda didn't take Darren seriously at first. Then, in mid-August, the couple went on a date when Darren announced he changed his mind and decided he no longer had to kill his stepfather. In September, Amanda and Darren were rehearsing for the same play at school. Darren played the lead in Caligula, a play about a Roman dictator who killed people at random. He commented to her that once he killed his mother and grandmother, he'd be able to act his part much better. Darren approached two of his classmates at Mount Douglas Senior Secondary with a plan so that he could get his inheritance sooner than later. 17-year-old Derek Lord and 16-year-old David Muir were bright students and excelled in school. Dave was a baby-faced grade 12 student who got straight A's and played flute in the school band. Derek came from a hard-working family. His mother worked at a private school and his father was an electrician. The Vancouver Sun reported that Darren promised Dave a house on 100 acres in Souk, and Derek would get his own apartment and an allowance of $1,000 a month, and that they would get their payoff three months after the killings, waiting so they didn't raise suspicion. Darren purchased two crowbars for Dave and Derek. His mother went over to Tawasin every two weeks to help his grandmother with her business, and that's when it would happen. The province newspaper reported that on September 21st, Dave and Derek traveled to Tawasin. Darren had told them that the women were so friendly and that if they knocked on the door, there's a good chance they'd be invited in. And just in case they weren't, he told them where they could find a house key hidden in the yard. Darren instructed them to use gloves with the crowbars and to use the knives in the kitchen to stab them and make it look like a robbery. And that on the ferry ride back, they were to throw the gloves and crowbars overboard into the ocean. But the plan was aborted when the teenagers couldn't find Doris's house. Darren was furious and told them that they needed to get it right because his grandmother was about to donate $1 million to a retirement complex and that would reduce his inheritance. Darren instructed the killers to execute their plan for murder on October 5th. Dave and Derek took the crowbars and gloves and walked on to the 3 o'clock ferry from Victoria to Tawasin. Once they arrived, they hailed a taxi. They made small talk with the driver about the weather while they pulled out a street map of Tawasin. They asked the driver to take them to a mall about two miles from Doris's house. Doris and Sharon were at the store's warehouse until 5 p.m., then headed home. When Dave and Derek arrived at Doris's two-story house, her white Cadillac was parked in the carport. Two teenage boys were playing football next door and paid them only a fleeting glance. They knocked on the door, and sure enough, were invited in. The lasagna was sliced into four and about to be put on plates when Dave and Derek pounced. 
The two repeatedly struck the women's heads with the crowbars. After one forceful blow, Doris's ear was nearly torn off. Derek attacked Sharon with the crowbar, but was surprised when she didn't immediately pass out. Instead, she looked up at him and asked, Why are you doing this? They grabbed knives from the kitchen and threw dishcloths on the women's faces so that they didn't have to look into their eyes as they stabbed them and slit their throats. Derek had trouble finding Sharon's jugular vein, but eventually was able to. They threw things around the house to make it look like a robbery, then fled on foot back to the mall. At 6.45 p.m., Dave called the same taxi company and asked to be picked up. They were in a rush to catch the 7 p.m. ferry, but the taxi got stuck in heavy traffic as it neared the ferry terminal. They threw 10 bucks down on the front seat, bolted, and raced to the ferry. During the ride home, a classmate of Dave's recognized him, but didn't think anything of it. Darren and Amanda drove to the ferry terminal. Dave and Derek got in the back seat. Derek seemed quiet and sullen, but Dave was upbeat. Darren nervously asked how it went. And Derek replied, What do you mean, we just killed two people? And described the beating with the crowbars. And then Dave commented that he'd put a one-inch hole in Granny's head. Derek said it wasn't easy killing Sharon because she stayed conscious for a while, and Dave laughed about the women offering them dinner. That night, Ralph kept phoning Doris's house to talk to Sharon, but no one was picking up. Finally, he called police in nearby Delta. At 2.40 a.m., they arrived to find four empty plates on the kitchen counter and four slices of lasagna nearby, with the microwave door open. Then they discovered Doris and Sharon. Their bloodied bodies, fully dressed, were strewn on the kitchen floor, with their faces still covered. Fifteen detectives and forensic experts arrived. At first glance, it looked like a robbery gone wrong. But once investigators started looking closer, they found wallets with cash and traveler's checks along with jewelry left behind. And they wondered who were the two mystery dinner guests. Police broke the news to Ralph and Darren. Father and son sat on the kitchen floor and cried together. No fingerprints or hairs were found at the murder scene. Police appealed to the public for information then began looking at everyone close to the women, starting with family members. It didn't take them long to rule out Sharon's husband, Ralph, as he had no motive. But they soon learned of someone who did. Ralph and Sharon's son, Darren, who would be inheriting his grandmother's estate, were three million. On October 6, police interviewed Amanda for the first time. She stuck to the plan and provided them with alibis, saying she gave Dave and Derek a ride downtown after school. Then later that evening, 
Her and Darren met up with them downtown for dinner and returned home by 10 p.m. On the day of Doris and Sharon's joint funeral, police interviewed Derek for the first time, and he repeated Amanda's story. Then police learned about a lawsuit that Sharon was involved in with the building contractor that worked on their home. The feud had gotten so nasty, she almost put him out of business. For weeks, he was a suspect. That is, until October 24th, when investigators visited the high school. They interviewed numerous students, but it was their talk with Toby Hicks that took the investigation in a whole new direction. Toby told them that Darren was obsessed with money and that he talked about killing his grandmother and getting half her estate. But if he killed his mother too, he would get it all. The principal provided investigators with student photos of Darren's friends. Investigators focused on Darren's alibi and put wiretaps on Darren, Dave, and Derek's phones. Near the end of October, Darren took Amanda out for a champagne dinner. She was afraid to say no, afraid of what Darren would do to her. She knew too much. A few days later, he broke up with her. Amanda felt used, hurt, and angry. A month after the murders, investigators interviewed taxi drivers in Tawasson. Using the photos the principal at the high school had given them, they asked the drivers if they recognized anyone. The driver who picked them up at the ferry terminal and had taken them to the mall said that the photo of Dave rang a bell. Investigators then took the photos to the two neighborhood boys playing football that day next to Doris's house. One of the boys picked out the photos of Dave and Derek. Investigators went back to Amanda's house to interview her again on November 16th. This time, her mother was home, and Amanda retracted her statement about having dinner with the boys and admitted she'd had dinner at home. This gave investigators the feeling that she was lying and that she knew more. Amanda wanted out, but stayed quiet. She was afraid of Darren, that he would try to kill her or have Derek and Dave kill her. A week later, the police wiretap recorded a call. Investigators visited Dave and told him that he and Derek had been positively identified on the ferry and by a taxi driver. Dave panicked and phoned Derek and stated, We've got to change our story. Derek then phoned Darren. Two days later, police kept the pressure on the teenagers and visited Derek at his job at Kmart and told him point blank that they knew he had murdered Doris and Sharon. On November 27th, police arrested Dave and Derek and took them to the police station in Delta. Later, police offered Dave a deal plead guilty to first-degree murder in youth court, where the maximum prison time is only three years, in exchange for testifying against Derek and Darren. 
Dave agreed without consulting with his lawyers and confessed to how he and Derek had committed the murders. But the next day, Dave's lawyers stepped in and declined the plea bargain. Instead, Dave pled not guilty. Police then looked for the next weakest link and interviewed Amanda a third time. At her home in front of her mother, they told her she might be charged with murder. Amanda broke down and finally told them the gruesome details of what happened. Then Amanda was put into the Witness Protection Program, and Darren was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He was taken to Delta where he appeared dazed. At 18, Darren was considered an adult and was facing a life sentence with no parole for 25 years. He pled not guilty. Meanwhile, Dave and Derek were released on $10,000 bail with conditions to reside at their parents' homes. Prosecutors were attempting to get both of them raised to adult court based on the seriousness of their crimes. If successful, they too faced a 25-year sentence. Six months after the murders, a judge ruled that both Derek and Dave would stand trial in adult court. Darren was held at the Wilkinson Road Jail in Victoria while waiting for his trial to begin, a short seven miles from where he'd lived with his parents. While there, he met Stanley Dick, a convict with a long criminal history. The two talked daily, and Darren offered him $10,000 to eliminate a witness to kill Amanda. But Stanley didn't take Darren up on his offer. Rather, he went to police and agreed to testify for the prosecution. In June 1991, a year and a half after Greed led him to hire two classmates as hitmen, Darren stood trial. The courtroom was packed and spectators spilled out into the hall. And in a twist no one saw coming, Darren took the stand. He claimed he knew Dave and Derek had murdered his mother and Gran, as he called her, but that he kept it a secret because he wanted to exact revenge on them and kill them both. The jury didn't buy it and found him guilty. A judge sentenced him to life without parole for 25 years. Dave and Derek were tried together a year later in May 1992. The jurors were not told about Darren and his conviction, so it was a surprise when he showed up in court to testify. Dressed in a white shirt, jeans, and a blue sports jacket, he took the stand. When asked to take the Bible in his hand, he turned to the judge and announced, My Lord, I'm refusing to participate in this proceeding. So the judge responded by ordering him removed from the courtroom. After six and a half hours, the jury found Dave and Derek guilty of first-degree murder. Both received the mandatory life sentence of 25 years, but because they were juveniles when they committed the crime, the jury recommended that they be eligible for parole in 10 years. 
1995, Darren escaped from prison. He assaulted a prison employee and took off in a high-speed chase with police. He was captured and returned to prison and convicted of escaping from lawful custody. In 2002, after serving 10 years, Dave received parole. Derek maintained his innocence and his parents spent close to a million dollars trying to prove it. He was denied parole many times, but in 2017, after serving 25 years, Derek received parole. Darren changed his name from Hanneman to Gowan, and in October 2020, the parole board denied his request for unescorted temporary absences, saying that while he had made progress in addressing his anger and narcissistic personality, he was still a moderate risk to reoffend. That is why it was such a shock 11 months later, in August 2021, when he was granted two days a month of unescorted freedom at a halfway house. It's been 30 years since Sharon and Doris were murdered, and now their killers are free. Free to live their lives, while Sharon and Doris's lives were cut tragically short. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Bruce Beresford Redman. He met Monica, exotic and beautiful, at her restaurant. They married, and Bruce became a TV producer. With success came challenges. Both had affairs. Then a vacation meant to bring them back together tore them apart forever when she wound up dead. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effect from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>